Hello, and welcome to the Meaning of Life podcast, hosted by Dr. Susie Farello. Dr. Farello is an associate professor at California State University, East Bay. She does philosophy based on lived experience and works as a philosophical counselor. You can find some of her work online on academia.edu and psychology today. Thank you. Welcome to that Ted Grodin uh, for uh, this uh, fifth episode of uh, Philosophy Gets Personal. It's my, it's my great pleasure to have you today. Ted is uh, the Environmental Humanities Specialist at Santa Clara University in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sciences. His work revolves around uh, how people understand themselves in relation to nature something super, super interesting and uh, very helpful. Thanks for uh, accepting my invitation today, Ted. It's my great pleasure. So from where did you start with your work? Uh, how did you manage uh, or how do you manage uh, to look at nature from nature points of view, if uh, this is uh, a direction you took with you? Because I read that you are trying to cleans somehow uh, the interpretation of the environment from uh, an, an anthropocentric human point of view. How do you do that? It's extremely difficult and useful, like I'd say. Well, it's a project that's been done in various different ways from various, various different fields and even uh, religious approaches that potentially sort of decentralize uh, the narrative from humanity. Um, it's not, in some ways, it seems almost impossible to do because, oh. you know, your ideas, even if they're as extreme as possible, they're still coming from a human mm -hmm. brain, a human mind. Um, and so that aspect of the sort of anthropocentric, um, human-centered approach uh, is hard, is really, you know, potentially impossible to avoid on some level. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, um, remembering that not all life and not all meaning has to be derived from, you know, this species, this singular kind of life form, that there are other living things on this planet that uh, may have their own kinds of meaning uh, that they create at, at every given moment. So it's very hard to imagine that. Uh, of course, and we would might have trouble entering the consciousness of uh, other beings, uh, but we can at least uh, try or imagine uh, something like that. Do you use any phenomenology in doing so? What uh, um, philosophical approach do you use? I've always been interested in phenomenology because of how it's centered in experience. I think that a lot more can be understood uh, from that perspective, but I don't specifically uh, employ that necessarily mm -hmm. in my work, um, although it's something I'd like to do more of. And an example to give back the narrative to nature, how do you, how, how can we see this? How can we train our mind to this? Well, in a few of my classes, I've led a um, very simple experience for students. Um, where they are asked to go outside and find one living plant and focus on that plant for five minutes quietly. And that's a long time to focus on one plant. But for a plant, it's not a long time. I don't think uh, 
they experience time in such a different way. Um, but by doing so, by spending that quiet time focusing on one singular living plant, um, you can really see a lot more potentially than you normally would just walking by that stationary object. The reason I, I employ this experience for my students is that I myself had a, a special experience with a very sort of dilapidated shrub that I found near Baker Beach in San Francisco. I spent, you know, maybe around five minutes just, you know, looking at and observing that plant. And I noticed that as dilapidated and sort of sad as the plant looked, it was actually this amazing study in resilience um, and that it was doing all these things that I wasn't giving it credit for. Um, you know, it was swaying in the wind. So it was kind of, you know, managing the um, the weather pretty well. And um, But it was also, you know, it was eating from the soil. It was drinking from the water. It was breathing from the air. It was exhausting. Uh, you know, it was inhaling and exhaling. And it was in some sort of process of reproduction, um, you know, which I probably didn't understand exactly what part of that it was in. But yeah. Yeah, it was doing all these things all at once while it was sitting there in the soil. And it really changed my perspective on plant life. And, you know, since then, I've spent a lot more time thinking and writing about plants. That's very beautiful. How can you see it's even difficult to ask questions because I realized that uh, every question would be um a reference to the way in which I think, because uh, I'm tempted to ask you about the intelligence, uh, the emotions of plants, uh, the the sociality of plants. Uh, um, but I know that these are human parameters. Yes, um, there are scientists looking into these questions and theorizing and finding, making some pretty fascinating uh, discoveries and claims. Um, I'm not an expert in, in those fields, but uh, I think there's a lot more to look into and um, a lot more discoveries to be made uh, along those lines. And we do share a lot in common with, with plants. Um, it's not entirely far-fetched to look for commonalities and uh, shared experiences even, as wild as that might sound. They're not um, aliens to us. They're more like relatives to us. Uh, literally and figuratively. Why did you uh, bring uh, forward the, the term uh, petrolosan? What do you mean by this? So I took a um, graduate seminar on the concept of the Anthropocene and uh, a number of uh, professors at UC Berkeley and their grad students um, just spent you know, a semester uh, toiling away at different uh, analyses and critiques of that um, idea and what came to my mind is Can the you idea. Tell that, sorry, our listeners. So, what do you mean? Uh, what is Anthropocene? So, the Anthropocene is relatively new term in the last twenty five years or so, and uh, a couple scholars uh, started writing about it to describe the geological epoch of that is sort of dominated by Anthropos or humanity. And so um, the idea is that uh, the planet has been uh, fundamentally altered by human societies. And so when I was thinking about that, I sort of, I had a few issues there, realizing that without the use of fossil fuels, um, the story would have looked 
entirely different on this planet. Um, and that fossil fuels themselves were such powerful agents in this uh, narrative and in this transformation of the planet. And so I wanted to emphasize them. So the Petrolocene is a way of talking about the age of fossil fuels. And it's you know somewhat of a critique on the idea of the Anthropocene. But when I write about it, I think about, you know, the kind of society-wide addiction that humanity has had with fossil fuels um, and how, how much they have altered pretty much uh, every aspect um, that I can think of, of, not just human life on Earth, but life on Earth um, to some extent. And so it's something that I'm still thinking about and sometimes giving talks about. Do you think that there's a, a way back from it? Because uh, the problem of Anthropocene uh, is that uh, it, it says, okay, uh, humanity altered uh, our uh, era in such a way that uh, we cannot come back, we cannot change anything. Is it the same for uh, your concept of Petrolocene? Uh, is there a way in which we can make up for uh, the mistakes we made? There have been some interesting ideas put forward about the next phases or eras that could come about. And I do think a lot of healing will happen. There will be a transition and a change away from the Petrolocene. Um, the world will look very well fundamentally altered. It already does, but it's going to be even more fundamentally different uh, than it is now. But there will be new ways that people connect with the planet and live here in vibrant communities and ecosystems. Um, but there's a lot of transitional phases in that are going to happen along the way. That's the way I look at it. Do you have in mind the transitional phases? So which ones uh, could they be or uh, just a vague idea? Or mm, Some of them are pretty, pretty dark visions. Some mm -hmm. times, I think, ahead that are going to be very challenging for humanity on Earth. And not to say it's not very challenging right now for hundreds of millions of people. It very much is. And uh, yeah. the climate crisis is playing a huge role in that. Now that uh, we managed to paint a very dark picture <laughs> of uh, where we are and what we did, <laughs> now I can ask the question, uh, how does happiness uh, look like for you? What is happiness? Because, uh, yeah, the, this uh, season of the podcast is... Uh, verges somewhat around happiness and uh, what you value in life, uh, uh, having the conscience of what we did and uh, how difficult it is to connect uh, with the environment and uh, how smaller we are making our chances to connect uh, with uh, nature, what makes us feel good. Can uh, How is happiness still possible? Uh, what's the source of happiness for you? For me, um, I feel the need to base my happiness in a realistic vision of my life and the broader world around me as much as I can. Um, I feel that it's a solid foundation for a life with well-being when you've already made a strong attempt to reconcile the challenges and the painful aspects that are part of uh, our lives or my life, or, you know, mainly speaking for me, in a lot of ways, happiness is such a situational, personal um, 
uh, kind of thing that everyone has a different uh, pathway towards what they see as their happiness. Um, but for me, I really feel the um, necessity and the importance of coming to terms with heavier, sadder things so that I can build the foundation that won't crumble when those things rear their heads. Yeah. Was there ever a moment uh, in which uh, you felt that uh, ah, now it's really hard to achieve, uh, to, to choose happiness because uh, you felt that you lost something or something valuable was uh, taken away from you in your life? Did that ever happen situationally? Very much so. Um, you know, I had a very special dog in my life. Uh, I actually got him in one of the toughest years of my life, which was my first year, uh, my PhD program. And he was like, uh, you know, he was a ray of sunshine. His name was Sonny, spelled with an O, but he was also like Sonny spelled with a U. And, and he was this half boxer, half golden retriever um, that I... Uh, adopted from a family in the East Bay, in, in uh, the Bay Area. And um, he was about one and a half when I got him, and I had him for about 12 years. And we had a very special uh, bond and connection. He was very personable. He would look me straight in the eyes and really communicate in ways that I've never really been able to communicate with many dogs in that, in that way. And he understood in the English language pretty well. Um, if I told him, please go sit in your chair or go sit outside, he would actually know what I was saying. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite um, biology professors at, um, at Cal, once we were chatting and, and he mentioned um, that, that dogs are almost better at sensing human emotion than humans are. And I think that's probably the case. Uh, there, there's a more instant, uh, uh, they instantly yeah. know how we feel in, in a lot of situations. But I lost him in December, which, you know, I was one of the most painful experiences of my life. Um, it was very hard to actually do it. Um, but also, once he was gone, you know, for weeks, I was um, lost in sorrow. I was lucky because it was winter break for my students. And so I had some time to, mm -hmm. to actually grieve. It mm -hmm. would have been harder if I had to just go to work uh, during that time. But I, I grieved for many weeks and I had some very supportive friends who understood because not everyone understands oh, yeah. uh, the bond someone can have with their pet. Maybe the way it felt was like he was this person I cared for, sort of like a uh, some sort of child that I cared for. And, you know, you're, you're not supposed to outlive uh, your child. Uh, so it's the loss. It just doesn't make sense and it feels wrong. And, um, and you have to make the decision for your pet a lot of the time. You have to make the decision, which is really yeah. cruel and uh, necessary at the same time. I, I, I experienced also the loss of my 17, she lived a year old dog and making the choice, deciding now it's time is uh, impossible. It's almost irrational. 
because um, you want to see only what good it is because uh, you don't make this choice for your relative. I mean, uh, hopefully in um, in your life, uh, you will not be called to the side, okay, now you lived enough. Uh, it's time for, it's, it's clement for me to decide to let you go. And also, as you were saying, it's your child, but then it becomes your grandmother, your uh, grandfather, because uh, there's this uh, strange uh, time relationship with them uh, for which they start uh, as little kids, uh, but then they teach us also what it means to age, uh, yeah. to feel pain and so on. Yes. And again, it's uh, coming back to what you were saying at the beginning, it's hard to give the narrative back to them because uh, um, they, they, in the society as it is, uh, they cannot make this choice. So you have to make... Uh, a super i i felt it as a, a betrayal when uh, i mean okay i helped her to transition to hopefully something better because um, she was in lots of pain but at the same time i mean uh, the last sight uh, it felt like a betrayal mm. i I, I still don't know how to come at peace with. Uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh, want to adopt another dog afterwards. I, I. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't resolve this um, problem in uh, my head. The only thing I could do was think about what would I want in his situation, and I. Um, I made the you know. The idea came to mind that would I want a beautiful, happy last week or day, or would I want 10 years of, or 10 months of, you know, extreme pain? And, you know, that was the only way I could come to terms with, um, you know, helping him not suffer anymore because it was so hard to, like you said, to, um, have to it it does feel like betrayal because you can't ask them what they want and they can't make that choice no on their own and they're just going to go along with the person mm -hmm. they love which is you and, mm -hmm. yeah, and they're going to trust you, you. Mm -hmm. yeah and but he had a beautiful final day and oh i'm glad there was no pain for him that day and i he even got to see the sun which he loved <laughs> wanted I'm that was very important to me that he he didn't his last day wasn't rainy mm. because, because he didn't really like the rain and I wanted him to I wanted him to have a beautiful last morning and and he did and so yeah but I in some ways you know the experience also deepened my gratitude and happiness overall because you know because I realized, you know, life is this finite thing, extremely mm -hmm. short. Um, and he somehow feels like he's still with me. And, you know, I, he'll be in my heart for as long as I live and he'll be on my mind mm -hmm. and in my thoughts for the rest of my life. Um, and um, so in some ways, and the time we shared those years, they exist in the universe somehow still. Mm -hmm. um, and they always yeah. will 
And so if that weren't the case, you know, nihilism would, would feel much more appropriate. <laughs> but I, I do believe that, you know, the time in the past somehow exists um, uh, for eternity, um, somehow. Uh, I don't know, it's some intuition or some wishful thinking, but, um, but yeah. The time is with, uh, with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you share, uh, I mean, is there um, uh, any other way in which, uh, I don't know, animals' nature uh, uh, can uh, give you comfort, company, and so on uh, today? Or uh, you took distance a little before uh, getting again? Uh, yeah, I, I haven't been able to get another pet uh, yet. Uh, someday, I very mm -hmm. much look forward to having, you know, more uh, cats or dogs um, mm -hmm. um, in my life. But I'm taking a little breather because it was such an intense experience. And, um, you know, I can never replace the relationship I had with Sonny. Um, but no, not he taught me so much. He was one of the best mentors and... Uh, you know, like you said, in some ways, he was he was my grandparent um, at the end, and he was my teacher. Um, and I learned so much from him. And my students learned from him, too, because I was able to share some of the things I learned. And, you know, I'm forever grateful to him. He, you know, yeah, he's one of the lessons uh, he taught you. Mm, there are so many. Um, I think he. He taught me about the depth of meaning beyond the human sphere because his ability to stay in the moment and hold space and presence with me yeah. uh, was so profound. Um, and he had so much love and so much joy for life. And he accepted my care so thoroughly. I remember one time he was running around, uh, having a great time on the top of this hill in um, Claremont Canyon and sort of Oakland, Berkeley border. And um, he was jumping around and he jumped over a log and he hit, you know, a branch because he just miscalculated or didn't see it. And it took a big chunk of his fur and a little bit of skin, just ripped it off. And I thought he had broken his leg because he was just crying and... Mm -hmm. It was very painful to see. So I just picked him up and I carried him all the way down the hill, which was very steep. And uh, and then when we got home, I, you know, put some antibiotic uh, ointment on there. And and it turned out he didn't have a broken leg, which which was a big, great thing. And and he just he was consoled and he was cared for and. um. And it was so special to be that person in his life. Um, but again, just there was um, just so much depth to this. Um, I want to call him a young person because yeah. he was a person. And uh, and then he kind of, in some ways, he was signaling, signaling to me that there's more meaning beyond in other animals, other species, and also beyond animals in yeah. other life forms, whether they be, you know, mushrooms, plants, bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I even think about the, you know, the, the vibrancy or the, 
Mm-hmm. And especially if it's in, you know, quote unquote, inert matter, um, because there is so much happening in every, you know, molecule and atom and going further down the line um, into particles and stuff. But, you know, there's so much energy and um, just fascinating stuff going on with quote unquote inert matter, mm-hmm. which, which I'm not trying to say, that, you know, that your definition of life would have to change to say that, um, you know, that concrete is living matter. Um, but it's interesting to think about, you know, the activity that's happening in every molecule, uh, for example. Um, but um, yeah, life is not necessarily what you see. Mm. It's uh, there's concreteness that is uh, invisible and is uh, very much alive, but invisible to human eyes because uh, it's uh, it's there and it's alive and. Uh, mm. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it's there. And why that? Why was your uh, first year of PhD so difficult? Because I remember you said that Sony entered your life uh, during this first year. What was going on? It was just a perfect storm of different challenges that I was facing in my life. Uh, loneliness, um, the challenge of Berkeley grad school, which I think... I could have never been fully prepared for uh, the intellectual challenges there, but there's also the social challenges of and the learning to communicate and get along with lots of intense people and the professors. Uh, but it, overall, the people were so lovely, uh, and I, I I learned to really uh, enjoy the community there. Um, but yeah, it was a tough year and. I got to see a fair amount of darkness. Um, I lived uh, by myself in this um, cabin that was kind of in the woods. And I really, the dog was what was missing. Um, he he brought the sunshine to the place. And after that, it was never the same in a very positive way. And um, the funny thing is, uh, shortly after getting him, I lost him for 36 hours. <sighs> oh, that's and- yeah, because he was hanging out with me and some friends on campus, actually. And then he just sort of, at, at one point, just disappeared. And I, he had been there for hours, and then he disappeared. And for 36 hours, uh, I couldn't find him. I looked everywhere. But he somehow, with his intelligence, um, he found his way back more, like, basically a mile up this hill. He had never even maybe done the walk before, but he found my place. Oh. He came back and I'd only had him for a month. He came back to me. There was already a bond after a month and it was almost like he was very hungry and thirsty. So that was a big <laughs> part of it. And he had some ticks on him. And so he'd, he'd had some fun out there. His night and day out on the town. Um, but he came back and I knew that I'd never let him go missing again. Like it was a big lesson. And, um, and you know, after that day, yeah, I never let it happen again. So I still have nightmares. I mean, my dog is gone. Uh, now it's been four years. I still have nightmares that I miss her, that I, that she disappears and I don't know what to do. 
And I don't know, I don't know if now we are indulging over this, but I don't know if you had that feeling of um, for 17 years, uh, I felt uh, I had the responsibility over a life to keep that life safe and comfortable and healthy and integral and so on. And um, they take the body when uh, the, the dog dies. When uh, I saw her brought away from uh, the doctor, it was weird because I there was a little part of me that felt, uh, okay, I completed the, the task of um, being responsible for uh, that little body that was so, so, so precious precious for so many years for me I don't know if you felt that um, that kind of responsibility over uh, him through the years yes I mean it's hard to explain how it, you know he he went to sleep he was so peaceful I tried to speak to him during those moments and yeah it did feel wrong when he left uh, the room and you know he wasn't under my care anymore um it's it's a strange way that this society deals with the end of life, even with our pets. And I mean, there's different ways people approach these things um, with both people and pets. A lot of diversity in how people approach these things, but they're also, you know, maybe um, the majority of how it's done is is very specific or unique um, and different from other approaches. So yeah, it's it's an oddity how how much people hide death from themselves and i think it doesn't do us a service for our own happiness because yeah. i think we should be aware of the brevity of life and i think for a lot of my life i felt like everything was just a preparation or an audition or a practice for something real in the future i think i'm i think i shared mm -hmm. this I think a lot of people must feel this way. That's the way it feels to me is that during our whole lives, that is kind of an idea that's put forward, like during schooling, like, oh, this is, you know, you're in your eighth grade play. That's, a, you know, maybe, maybe for a minute, it feels like the biggest thing in your life. But it also is sort of like, well, it's a middle school play. And, and then you start to look at it as well. It's just all an audition for something in the future. And the question is, well, when are you going to stop being in an audition or a practice? And when are you going to realize that, you know, this is something to embrace as the real thing, the actual thing, the actual experience, and that it is rather short and that you have to do the best you can to find the meaning and beauty in your experience, um, because that's what you have in life, right? I, total, I totally agree. Yeah. I don't know if I think about what you said, the moment in which I felt uh, that I stopped uh, this sense of preparation, I remember distinctly, maybe I wrote it also in my journals, uh, that uh, it all seems like uh, a preparation too. Uh, it seems that uh, uh, this feeling stopped uh, when I started um, embracing uh, fears and desires. Uh, when I um, when I said, "Okay, 
it's uh, it's good to let everything go uh, all these uh, things that makes me feel secure and uh, to embrace uh, you know, for example, I always loved, but really loved doing research. But I always thought that uh, I was not good enough, capable enough, uh, uh, you know, the whole thing. And so I started applying like hell. I didn't get any position, of course, but I started um, trying and trying and trying. And the closer I got to what I thought I was, but I didn't dare to believe that I was, or something like that. The more this sense of um, getting ready to uh, faded, and uh, I thought, and I stopped thinking about it. And then a meaning came up, because then you you start coming in contact with. Uh, how beautiful it is to be part of life, to contribute, to bring meaning, to share it with others. Yeah, that's a really good point you brought, which brings us to generally the last question, the last difficult question of this podcast, which is, what do you think is the meaning of life? if uh, there is uh, a meaning. This brings me back to what our conversations about plant life. And I kind of want to walk back a few feet um, and kind of circle back to the fact that when I was first teaching, I designed a course called Literature of Environmental Apocalypse. And uh, students were excited about it because, you know, it sounds like, you know, a dark sci-fi movie. But by the end of the class, uh, one of the classes I asked everyone in the room, I said, you know, do you feel hopeful or sad about the future after, you know, everything we've talked about? And almost everyone was pretty down about the future, their future or future of life on earth. And I said, okay, this is not what I, the kind of messaging or feeling that I want my students to leave one of their final courses in college with. Um, because even if they're connecting with something that is realistic um, on some level, it's not going to be helpful for them. And well, hopefully they, they found a way to turn it into something helpful for them. But what I decided to do was to shift around the course and call it environmental hope. And what I would did though, is I didn't wanna take away the dark stuff at the beginning, so I left a fair amount of apocalyptic material at the very beginning. And then we spent the rest of the quarter um, exploring you know, creative ways to be hopeful and optimistic about the world despite the apocalyptic realities. And at some point earlier in my career or just in my personal thinking, you know, I. I sort of maintain the idea that the meaning of life is to live. Um, but of course, that's such a vague way to say it. But when you think about it, what does it really mean to live, to be alive, to be aware, to feel, to connect with the world around you, um, the people in your life, the sad things, the happy things, the sweet things, the the delicious things, the, you know, the amazing smells, the the beauty around you. Uh, there's just so many, and everybody's situation and the way they interact with the world is unique. Um, and so this is different for everyone, but 
I think the simplest answer is that, you know, the meaning of life is to live. Um, but you have to look into what living, what the, the attributes of living that give you meaning, basically. So it's, there's an existential um, task in the meaning of life. It is for you to connect with that. And every person will have a unique approach to that uh, process. Yeah. This is really, really beautiful. Thanks. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a great pleasure for me to get to know you a little bit better today. Me as well. <laughs>